This is Religion and Theology, a podcast from the Center for Theology and Religious Studies. This is the third lecture out of seven in the series, The Many Guises of European Catholicism, hosted by CTR, as well as the Center for European Studies at Lund University. The lecture goes under the title, Theology of the Nation, the role of the Catholic Church in Poland in shaping and preserving Polish national identity, presented by Magdalena Jaczkowska, PhD student at CTR. Thank you, thank you very much for having me. Um, I'm a bit distracted by this huge screen in front of me, so I, I don't know yet how to deal with this, but uh, hopefully it's not going to interrupt me. Um, first of all, I would like to say a few words on uh, my approach to this topic and uh, why I chose to speak about uh, this particular um, theme. Uh, my research is dealing with, uh, as Stefan said, Jewish-Christian relations in Poland, and one of my main problems at this stage of my research, so very early stage, is that um, it's very hard to understand uh, is a Pole and what does Polish national identity encompass or entail um, especially if compared to uh, different minorities that were in Poland in the interwar time therefore um, this is a kind of side excursion starting from uh, my original research, my uh, PhD project, uh, but my approach is historical. Uh, my background is in history uh, of art and in Jewish studies, uh, but I've always uh, used historical approach. So even though the title is um, Theology of the Nation, uh, what I would really like us to do uh, this evening is to um, together uh, have this brief uh, excursion basically running through Polish history because I think uh, the answers to um, Polish identity as understood by Poles lay in there. Uh, I think without understanding um, Polish historical circumstances and experiences it's impossible to understand uh, Polish national identity. Um, Therefore, uh, it's going to be very historical. Then, if you have any other questions, uh, please feel free to ask me. Also, I don't mind being interrupted, so if you want to ask something while I'm talking, just raise your hand. That's perfectly fine. Um, first of all, um, I was uh, reading recently a lot um, about the notion of Polish national identity or Polishness, Polskość, as we would say in Polish. And uh, there are some core elements that uh, majority of the researchers would agree on that they are components of Polish national identity. That would be, uh, of course, symbols, values, stereotypes, ideas um, presented or contained in literature language, art, customs, therefore in culture. And um, now how Poles, how did 
the Polish nation or the Poles, how did they construct, how did we construct our national identity? In order to understand that, as I said, we need to go uh, to our history because uh, I would say that maybe, um, maybe even more than our neighboring countries, we are very dependent on that. And um, I uh, would like to start um, from introducing this uh, notion of entangled identity, uh, which uh, also is a um, subtitle of this uh, book by Krzysztof Kosowa, published in 2003. Uh, he discusses uh, core elements of Polish national identity, but also, as uh, maybe you can understand that even though it's in Polish, Polak Catholic, Pol and Catholic. Uh, these are um, two um, criteria or two features that go very closely together. Therefore, Kosowa used this term entangled identity, uh, which would mean that, um, and it's really present in stereotypes that Poles have. Um, about themselves, but also, I'd guess, in other people have on Poles that uh, a true Polish, uh, a true Pole is also Catholic. We have the stereotype of Polish Catholic, which becomes, uh, in the end, um, an amalgam, something that cannot be um, separated any longer. Uh, and Kosowa argues that. Uh, Polish national identity, which is also Catholic identity, these two um, char characteristics cannot be separated, and um, they were built um, using five core uh, elements, which are listed here. So we would have the remnants of the Sarmatian traditions, uh, that is, the traditions that are based on what nobility nobility, Polish nobility, thought about themselves, especially uh, from 16th to 18th century. Uh, and this is very um, closely connected to knightly ethos, uh, to um, the ideals of uh, freedom, independence, uh, honor. Uh, then on top of this, we have religious and cultural to tolerance, and the tradition of multiculturalism that, however, uh, in reality was present only, I would say, for a relatively brief time. Um, and then it somehow dissolved, but it's still present uh, in our stereotypes of Poland and Poles. So we would think on about ourselves that, uh, yes, yes, maybe, you, um, I don't know, we hear from uh, the Americans or the Western um, pe Western people, so to speak, the Western world, uh, what often re uh, reappears is the accusation of anti-Semitism, for example, that Poles are, this is a stereotype, Paul anti uh, an anti-Semite. But then a Polish person would say, yes, yes, but we uh, have this long tradition of religious freedom. Uh, and tolerance, uh, which would, in uh, Polish mind, solve the question. Uh, of course, all these uh, things are uh, very stereotypical. I'm not going in depth uh, 
in my analysis right now. This is just to highlight certain points. Um, and apart from this, we have romantic ethos that was, um, and by that I mean ethos that was constructed during the era of romanticism, 19th century. And I'm gonna talk about this more later. Then a pursuit of freedom. Freedom being uh, one of the core values of Polishness uh, or Polish national identity. Uh, and then we have Roman Catholic traditions and uh, the um, conviction that um, usually, yes, we use this Latin name, Poloniante Murale Christianitatis, which means that uh, Poland is this um, bank that protects Europe from the way of uh, be it heretic or pagan or communist barbarism. And it, it's very present. And now this is <laughs> very brief uh, history of Poland. Uh, so um, we're gonna discuss just some uh, points that I think are important. Uh, but uh, as far as I know, majority of researchers would uh, agree to at least to a large extent with my choices. So I think um, it, it's a good choice. Um, what is important uh, to know is that um, Poland as a state was born while it was Christianized. Uh, so we do not uh, have any um, real history uh, that is pagan, we call it prehistory. Uh, and it's, I think, very important for the formation of uh, Polish national identity. Um, then, um, very important event is union with Lithuania, you see, uh, 1301, because Lithuania was the only remaining pagan country, and they converted. They were Christianized uh, because they uh, entered into this union with Poland. So it's another claim to fame uh, <laughs> in, in Christian Europe for Poland. Uh, then uh, we're gonna skip Slavic slave trade. Uh, I would like to stop only uh, briefly in, in the Red period around 1655 and generally 17th century because it's a uh, uh, time where uh, this notion of uh, Polonia and Temorale Christianitatis is very uh, well solidified uh, because we have a lot of wars with, uh, for example, Tartars, uh, Turkey, but also our um, Protestant neighbors, for example, Sweden. And then we have partitions, which are also very important uh, for preserving Polish national, uh, national identity and it's also the beginning of, um, I would say it's a time when uh, modern nationalism uh, is born. Therefore, um, how Poles see themselves also changes very much. And then I'm going to briefly uh, touch upon uh, the Second World War and po uh, post-war period, namely communism. But it's going to be very, very brief. So uh, my I intend just to give you a certain panoramic view. Yes, uh, and all the, almost all the pictures that I use are paintings uh, by 
uh, Jan Mateiko, and I picked them on purpose because uh, he specialized in painting uh, historical scenes connected to the history of Poland in 19th century, and uh, these paintings shaped, uh, I would say, imagination of, mm, like patriotic imagination of uh, many generations of Poles, including me. Um, so, um, as we said, in the middle of the 10th century, uh, Poland started to be Christianized. Uh, uh, Polish, well, not really Polish, uh, Prince of Poland, uh, Mieszko I, uh, received uh, baptism from uh, the Vatican. From, so, therefore, um, Poland became part of the Western world. I really like... Um, what Norman Davies said that uh, it's not that uh, Poland adopted uh, Catholicism, it's the Catholic Church that adopted Poland. But at the same time, Europe adopted Poland as its, as its part. Uh, so we enter history as a state um, only through baptism uh, and through um, Christianization done in a Western way, so Roman Catholic way. Uh, yes, I have a lot of quotation from Norman Davies because I'm a big fan of his books, uh, those on Holland. Um, and I think he's really to the point. Um, uh, what he says about uh, the House of Piast, the first dynasty, uh, they emerged from the midst of prehistory, but only thanks to the fact that they received uh, Catholicism. If they didn't, they would remain these local little um, princes or <coughs> almost chiefs of tribes. Nothing would happen on such a big scale. And uh, then what I already said, um, that the beginning of Polish statehood is um, <coughs> inextricably connected to Christianization. Uh, so since the beginning, Poland is a Christian country. And um, also, it's interesting because the um, first Polish king, um, son of the one who received uh, uh, um, the, well, the Roman Catholicism, was baptized, Boleslaus um, the Brave, Boleslaw Chrobry, as we would say in Polish, he received his crown from the Vatican. So since the beginning, there was this aspiration to be the part to be a part of the uh, Western um, culture of Europe. And also, as in many other places, church became first, um, in reality, first administrative system that would uh, cover uh, the state in its entirety. Uh, but um, then we, I skip the rest of the medieval times and, uh, to be honest, also the Renaissance although that was a period of religious tolerance. Uh, just two points that I wanted to make here uh, are that uh, Poland became a refuge for many uh, Protestant communities, groups, and sects, uh, precisely because of the uh, tolerance. There were uh, no laws against uh, freedom of religion or speech or conscience. And even one of the kings, King Sigismund Augustus, said, I'm not a king of your consciences, meaning that he didn't want to 
uh, get involved into the matters of uh, religion, um, freedom of uh, speech, conscience, and so on. Therefore, uh, Poland became a flourishing center of um, many Protestant communities, and um, it's also connected very much to the development of uh, uh, printing and a lot of, um, for example, um, Polish uh, Bible was, uh, as far as I'm uh, informed, uh, it was printed thanks to the Protestant uh, groups. And uh, yes, so that would be the Renaissance. Um, but then, um, I think that um, what happened during the Renaissance was um, important and it's present in Polish um, uh, national, um, I would say, narrative uh, about Polish identity. Uh, but I would say that these traditions are treated in a more shallow way, while what really mattered, I think, happened afterwards. Uh, for example, we have Counter-Reformation, which was an important time for the formation of Polish national identity uh, for many reasons. Um, uh, first of all, that was a time when the um, pol political situation of Poland deteriorated. Uh, we experienced many wars. Uh, so, um, there were some external um, conditions that uh, prompted Poles to be less tolerant. Um, then, uh, as an answer to uh, Reformation, there were also Jesuits who were brought to Poland in the 16th century. And uh, interestingly, they, mm, I would say they monopolized Polish uh, education for two centuries. Uh, I would say majority of Polish uh, nobility uh, in 17th and 18th century, uh, they went to uh, Jesuit schools. And uh, it was a very important factor because uh, they listened to uh, this narrative that was presented by the Jesuits, very counter-reformation narrative, uh, focused on certain uh, conservative values, being faithful to the Catholic Church, to the Vatican, and so on. Uh, then also Jesuits managed to uh, limit the access uh, to um, certain European or Western uh, books and um, Therefore, they managed to limit the, the European influences on Polish education uh, for quite a long time because uh, they were um, um, dissolved in the Polish lands by, uh, I think that was Katarina the Great in 1773. Um, but um, nonetheless, for two centuries, they were very, very active. Uh, in the field of education. So their influence was uh, very significant. Um, also, there was, um, I would say, quite strong censorship on books. Um, but at the same, so that, that wasn't welcome after the, uh, the era of religious tolerance. 
but uh, what happened is that many of uh, Polish noblemen who during uh, the era of the Reformation they would uh, become Protestants, they converted back to uh, Catholicism, Roman Catholicism. So almost all uh, noble families in Poland and Lithuania, which was one commonwealth, uh, they became Catholic. Um, and at the same time, uh, some members of clergy uh, became distinguished statesmen, like here, the person that you can see is Piotr Skarga, uh, who was uh, very well known uh, for his uh, sermons, and uh, he was an advisor to Polish king. Uh, and he's just one of the examples of um, members of clergy who became very, very affluent and uh, had an impact on, on Polish politics. Uh, so you can see that uh, the Catholic interests became very close uh, to uh, the political ones. And um, what is interesting uh, is that church was excluded from secular jurisdiction, but at the same time it maintained a very, very high influence on what was going on in politics. I think two things that might be worth saying yeah. is that first even during the age of uh, religious toleration there were bishops like Bishop Hosius yes of course who were very strongly against Protestants and at the same time but I think then the polemics were the main yes. tool for fighting each other but after such a certain period of time it just it was just that the scales were moved towards the Catholics because they started to employ the state apparatus to help their polemical skills. Yes, it's true, I agree. Um, unfortunately, I um, don't feel I have enough time to go into all the details, so everything that I'm saying is just a simplification, obviously, uh, as I intend to give you a certain overview. Uh, but and the other one, the other thing I think which Piotr Skarga reminds me of is that the strange thing about Polish Catholicism was that it was the clergy that brought enlightenment to Poland and not rationalists. Yes. Well, they were rationalists. Yeah, yes. <laughs> but uh, we're going to get there. Uh, before uh, that, I would like to um, go back to this idea of Polonian temporale christianitatis. Um, because this is precisely the time of counter-reformation. I think um, these two phenomena are very closely interrelated. Um, because uh, this is a time when Polish nobility, which was the, I would say, um, the driving force of the nation, uh, they were around 20% of the society. Uh, so quite a lot if you compare it to other uh, European countries. But um, back then, peasants or serfs, they wouldn't have a sense of any national belonging. Um, therefore, when I'm talking about uh, 15th, 16th, 17th century, even 18th century in these areas, I'm 
mostly referring to the nobility, so Schlachta in Polish. Um, so that's a time when um, Poland experienced a lot of uh, wars uh, with non-Catholics and even non-Christians. So on the one hand, uh, you would have Turkey on the east, uh, Tartars also on the east, Moscow also on the east, uh, um, from uh, the north, uh, you would have Sweden, uh, so Protestant country, um, and uh, these invasions that all happened uh, in the 17th century, around the middle of the 17th century, uh, they strengthened very much this notion that um, Poland as a Catholic country needs to protect Europe. Um, needs to stand for um, Catholic values, needs to uh, protect uh, Roman Catholicism. And um, that was, um, on the one hand, uh, very encouraged by the Vatican. On the other hand, it was also in line with um, certain agenda of the nobility, because uh, that was a way of uh, showing that you're um, you're a real knight. You can gain your hon honor and you can also gain your fortune while fighting the others. Um, and uh, one of the um, I hope it's there. Yes, one of the um, very important events for Poland in that period was the Battle of Vienna. Um, and it's, it's very important in how Poles think about history, because uh, it wasn't um, a Polish battle. It was, Poland was just one of the forces engaged, but how Poles remember this is that it's a Polish victory, Catholic victory, over uh, the Turkish uh, power. So basically what uh, uh, Charlemagne did in France a uh, couple of centuries earlier, protecting uh, Europe from uh, Islamic flood, we did there. Uh, so I would say uh, that's one of very important and this conviction is very important element uh, in Polish understanding of uh, who we are as a nation. Um, also, during that period, uh, Polish king became so desperate about all the wars uh, on almost all possible uh, borders that uh, he, oh, I'm going to go back to this, uh, that he decided to um, take an oath uh, so-called the Lvov Oath in 1656, and to um, proclaim uh, Virgin Mary uh, Queen of Poland, uh, which is, I would say, quite a um, bold step. Um, and also, he promised many things to her, which then never happened. But at the same time, uh, it also shows that um, in these times of struggle, Poles tended to be more Catholic and to uh, look for refuge, uh, maybe not so much in the church, but in faith and connection to, for example, for example, Virgin Mary. 
this is an image that um, comes, this is an image of Our Lady of Częstochowa, the most uh, famous, most important one in Poland. Uh, and um, also she was very, um, this image was very connected to um, one of the invasions, the Swedish one that was called the Flood in Polish. Um, because the legend has it that when uh, the Swedish troops attacked, uh, they uh, cut these two um, um, marks on her face. So this still uh, remains there till now. They are visible till now. And uh, the legend has it also that she uh, appeared herself uh, around this um, monastery to protect the monastery from you know, the Protestant heretics. Uh, so this obviously strengthens even more this uh, idea that, you know, Polish army, uh, Polish people are um, fighting the right cause. And the right cause is to defend your country, but also to defend Catholicism. And um, just um, brief digression, uh, the same idea was then um, reused in the 20th century. Uh, this is uh, one of the few images, not by Mateiko. Uh, this is uh, the Battle of uh, Warsaw uh, in 1920, when um, in a very unexpected way, Poles uh, won over the Soviet army. And therefore, it was considered again to uh, be a victory that uh, prevented Europe from the Soviet flood. So again, it's the same pattern. And uh, Poles, again, think of themselves in the same way as those who somehow protect Europe. Uh, and yes, the only, uh, maybe the only fort of, uh, remaining fort of Catholicism or faithfulness to the Vatican. Um, now I'm going to uh, briefly talk about uh, partitions, and there is not so much time left. Um, what is important is that um, when at the end of the 18th century um, Poland was divided between uh, Russia, Prussia and the Austro-Hungarian Empire, is that all Polish institutions or almost all Polish institutions ceased to exist. Therefore, the church would remain the only uh, institutional inst sorry institution still standing. Uh, at the same time, it was the only depository of Polish values, uh, Polish culture, Polish identity, um, and this situation more or less uh, remained for the entire 19th century. What is interesting, however, is that um, uh, there were a lot of tensions between the Vatican and the real, I would say, the pastoral praxis of the local uh, clergy um, during the 19th century, because that was a time of uh, Polish risings for independence, uh, first, uh, 
Okay, there were many. I'm going to just name a few. Uh, so, uh, for example, the November Rising in 1830 and then the January Rising in 1863, they were officially condemned by the Vatican, which didn't, I would say, didn't influence that much uh, the praxis of the local clergy, which, as you can see here, uh, it's a uh, probably Catholicin friar or Bernardin friar, uh, who takes a vow from this the peasant who's going to fight in a rising. So even though uh, the Pope, uh, I think it's Gregory XVI, uh, would condemn this rising, um, what the church in Poland really did was something completely different. Uh, but this um, encouraged a lot of trust on the uh, side of uh, regular lay Catholics, and also what happened is that somehow uh, Poles um, would cling even more to their faith, even though maybe they didn't have that much trust to the church as an institution. And at the same time, churches would be only places apart from private houses where you could uh, sing patriotic songs, because uh, they would count as uh, part of liturgy, for example. Um, yes, and then um, we have this very interesting um, philosophical uh, idea of, uh, or historiosophical idea of Poland being the Messiah of the nations, or Christ of the nations. Um, and uh, it was actually heavily influenced by uh, this heretic uh, Jewish uh, group, the Frankists. Um, so um, when Poland was, uh, as a country, non-existent uh, in the 19th century, um, what was promoted very much in uh, Polish poetry, literatural uh, drama, uh, especially in the first half of the 19th century, was this idea that um, Poland is just like Christ. Uh, she died, now she's uh, in a tomb, but she's waiting for her resurrection. And this suffering is um, not even important. It's necessary uh, to bring freedom and justice to other nations. And many Poles would uh, engage not only in uh, Polish risings, but also in uh, freedom for independence in the states, then uh, in various colonies in many European countries. Uh, what is interesting is also during this period, um, many Poles, including many priests, were deported uh, to Siberia. And this became um, a very, very important element of Polish uh, memory of 19th century and Polish national identity. I would say that you, um, if you consider yourself a Pole, uh, you have to be ready to suffer. And it's almost like in the Gospel, uh, if you want to follow me, leave every, everything you have. Uh, so. Polishness is, is very demanding. It's very exclusive. Um, yes, um, especially.
especially under the Russians, in the Russian partition, uh, church was, uh, Catholic church was uh, persecuted. Uh, therefore, people would uh, trust the Catholic church on these lands more, because obviously they wouldn't trust the occupier, but this somehow strengthened the authority of the Catholic church and the trust. Uh, then Poland in 1918 uh, got back its independence, so finally resurrected. Uh, and uh, during that time uh, there were three main institutions, the army, because thanks to the army uh, we became again an independent country, uh, the church and intelligentsia, so intellectual elites of the country, uh, but uh, the country wasn't very Catholic when it comes to the population. It was only 65% as compared to 86% today and 97% 10 years or 20 years ago. Uh, but what is important to know that it's in this period, Polishness is very often um, juxtaposed to Jewishness. Uh, therefore, the whole discourse of uh, real Paul being uh, Catholic re-emerges with, uh, with strength and many uh, clergy members uh, were very, very sympathetic to uh, the nationalist uh, ideology uh, and that was even more strengthened by the uh, Soviet or communist threat. Um, then uh, we went through the World War and again, as always when uh, Poland was somehow um, threatened uh, politically, its existence was uh, very unsure or it simply ceased to exist, Poles flocked to the church. Uh, they, um, they felt that this is the only institution when they can cultivate, cultivate their Polishness. So uh, also after the war, um, again, Norman Davies, I'm sorry. Uh, the church survived, and it survived in this uh, halo of uh, martyrdom. And somehow, figures such as uh, Maximilian Kolbe, they, um, they became symbols of um, sacred union between the nation and the church uh, that in the end become the same thing. Um, and um, I, I'm very visual, so I also noted that um, even though uh, all these signs, uh, all these colors and um, element, iconographical elements, like uh, you know the, uh, the habit or the crowns or um, the the garment used in uh, in Auschwitz. Um, they have their explanation, but at the same time, there is, I think there are a lot of allusions to Polishness. Like even two crowns, obviously, one is uh, chastity and one is uh, martyrdom, but they are uh, red and white, just as Polish flag. Uh, so again, we have these categories that are overlapping, and uh, especially in this period after World War II, uh, during the communist period, Again, um, Poles were unable to uh, separate these two categories to a large extent, 
if you were a real patriot, if you were against the communist uh, regime, you would be Catholic, you would go to the church, also because in, it's the only institution that is uh, independent ide ideologically uh, from the regime. Plus, uh, we had these two um, wonderful figures, uh, Pope John Paul II, uh, who's on this picture kissing the hand of uh, Cardinal uh, Wyszynski. Um, and these, um, these two people were icons uh, for Polish society. And um, this happened not only because they were spiritual leaders, but first of all, because they had the strength, the power to uh, face the um, communist regime and in the end to overcome it. Um, therefore, um, again, you have these overlapping uh, categories of Polishness and um, being Catholic. Uh, plus, during that period also, Polish, uh, Poland became much more monolithic when it comes to ethnicity and religion. So, vast majority of Poles, over 90%, would actually uh, be Catholic. Um, yes, <laughs> we have three more minutes, oh, so you can go on. Um, this is uh, more, more or less uh, the panorama that I wanted to show you, but uh, just to um, sum it up, um, I wanted to point out a few um, main traits of Polish national identity, which uh, are to me somewhere in between of being Catholic and being eth ethnically or nationally Polish. Um, so I don't know if that was clear in my um, talk, but uh, for Poles, being Polish was more connected to certain values that are mostly spiritual or moral. Therefore, being Polish is not connected actually to the land or to your blood, but more uh, to your uh, way of behaving and accepting certain moral or spir spiritual values. Um, it's a commitment. It requires sacrifices and a readiness to um, protect other nations, to um, basically um, it's, a, it's a calling in a way. <laughs> um, at least, I think, many generations of Poles uh, thought of this in this way. Um, and uh, what I mentioned, this parallel between Christianity and uh, Polishness, that it requires, um, basically, um, it requires a person to follow the same demands that are in the Gospel, uh, to leave everything behind and sacrifice everything for the sake of the nation, but not because this nation is something material. It's a spiritual bond that unites people. So, uh, in the end, Poland ends up being a certain idea, not really a country that we can place on a map. And this results to a large, large extent from the fact that for a long time, Poland was not on a map. Um, and today, uh, even though uh, I would say that um, 
all these elements are present in how Poles uh, see themselves. Uh, during the last 20 years, uh, things are changing. So um, we have now 87% Catholics in Poland. Uh, in comparison, uh, over 20 years ago, we had 96%. So uh, it's quite a change. Uh, and this is, I think, really, really interesting that we have 87% Catholics and 86% of those who believe in God. Um, yes, uh, what I think is interesting when it comes to uh, this notion of a nation is that, oh, it's twice, <laughs> 64% Poles are convinced that being Catholic is quite or very important in order to be a true Polish citizen. So it's still quite a lot, I'd say. It's more than a half. And uh, still over a half of Polish population thinks that our culture is better than our cultures. And why? Because it's more, um, it's something more in terms of these moral or spiritual values, not only in terms of food or um, culture per se. Um, yes, um, I, I don't know, this might be interesting for you here, um, although I'm still not entirely sure how church, for example, Catholic church, is financed in uh, Sweden or other Scandinavian countries. But in Poland, uh, where the church receives regular support from the state, uh, only 28% of the society thinks that uh, the church should be supported by the state. And only 27% prays every day. Therefore, there is a big gap um, between these, I would say, ideological attachment to Catholicism and a real practice of everyday life. Um, I hope that was helpful or interesting in any way. Thank you very much for your attention.